you wake up one day with a great idea. Let's build an Australian space agency. Then you have to worry about how you're going to fund it. How do you actually fund research on a national scale? In Australia, publicly funded research and development, or R&D as we call it, has led to the invention of plastic banknotes, extended wear contact lenses, and of course, Wi-Fi. In the commercial context, R&D is a strategic choice made by a business in the pursuit of some kind of competitive advantage. But what does this mean in the government context? Should society expect an immediate return on their investment? On this episode of Think Business Futures, our very own Nicole Sutton tells us why a society would choose to fund R&D with taxpayer money. Plus, we'll chart the recent historical change in the way R&D is funded and discuss some of the issues with this new model. Nicole, how did you get interested in research and development? Uh, I'd have to say I got interested in it because both my parents are scientists. uh, And so I was raised in a household of science. I mean, that's what I kind of did on after-school projects and school holidays. I mean, it's pretty, (laughs) I guess, yeah, I was raised in a household of scientists. And so I guess I had a natural interest in, yeah, research and development in that sense. But you studied accounting, right? Yeah, that was my rebellion. Oh, I'm going to be so rebellious, I'll be an accountant. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Well, in my house, that was actually, you know, that was seen as an act of rebellion. It's like, what? Why are you going to go study business? Let's talk more about R&D then. What is research and development? So research and development is type of activity that's undertaken in pursuit of discovery of new knowledge, uh, new technology, and it's often associated with doing science, but can it extend to other things like social science and humanities as well? So are there different types of research and development? Absolutely. Um, it's really diverse. So on the and there's lots of different ways we could categorise it. One of the most common categories of research and development, I'm just going to call it R&D from now on in, sure. uh, is a continuum that kind of ranges from, on the one hand, you have pure or basic or blue sky research. And then you have more applied research, which is kind of takes those theories and actually relates them to practical uh, empirical examples. And then up the other end of the spectrum, you have something called development work, which is taking applied research and actually tailoring it to specific um, contexts that could potentially be commercialised. That's interesting. So could you give us some examples of types of research or projects that might sit along that continuum? Yeah, absolutely. So up the pure end would be stuff that we would associate with, you know, just basic theory, you know, so it could be theoretical physics or philosophy. In the middle, in the apply space, uh, that could be some sort of applied science, like some sort of biotechnology, um, or it could be some of the work that we do, where we do like applied social science, where we go and study organisations. Um, and up the developmental end, this is stuff that we could be in a, in a humanity sense, where you're doing particular targeted research, um, like social projects for particular communities, or more technology-oriented solutions, you know, say in IT, for example. So can I talk with you now a little bit about R&D funding then? Sure. So the question that would be really interesting to discuss would be, why should we have publicly funded R&D? The reason that we need to have publicly funded R&D is 
let's go back to the economics. And the economic theory would tell us that if we don't have publicly funded R&D, we're going to have situations of what we call market failure. Because research is inherently risky. That's why organisations and scientists undertake it. It's the pursuit of something new, new discovery. But it's risky and uncertain. And so if we was just to rely on private investment, then there, there sometimes isn't a business case for it. Uh, and one of the reasons could be that it just it doesn't pay off, but also it could be because in developing some new innovation or some new technology or some new knowledge, this would spill over in the sense that you've developed something new that everyone else benefits from and you're actually unable to kind of capture the, the benefits from your investment. And so for a private investor, that means that you might not be willing to actually make that investment. And so if we were just to rely on private investment, there'd be certain types of science and certain types of research that would just never be done. There's one other problem as well, and that is that research often takes a really long time to pay off. And we call these things research lags. There's been lots of different studies around the length of these lags, but say in agriculture, we do know that investment in agricultural research can take up to, you know, 25 years from when you do your project, then you have your findings, then it kind of, that it can be applied, that it can potentially be commercialised, and to start actually paying off could be 25 years down the track. Again, if you were to rely on a private investor, they probably don't see the, the business case for that. And because of these different instances of market failure, this is why we need to have publicly funded R&D to ensure that we have a broad kind of portfolio of research being done. You know what? Why don't we speak to someone who can speak about publicly funded R&D from an organisational level? Please take us to... Where should we go? Okay, wonderful. Okay. Thanks again for meeting to talk with us. Could you tell us about what is the role of the public service within Australia? Uh, Very good question. Now, you you understand that I'm doing a review of the future of the public service. And and just to put context to that, we're looking at what the public service should look like or be fit for purpose in 2030-35, a very hard job. But let's come back to uh, what the role of the public service is. That's David Thody, former CEO of IBM and Telstra and current chair of the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organisation, or CSIRO, as it's better known as. Well, firstly, the public service plays an absolutely critical role in our society and um, and often we, we don't recognise just how important uh, a role they play, both in terms of public policy... Uh, in terms of the laws of the land, in terms of regulation. Uh, They're also responsible for providing government services, and that's the whole cradle to grave. In our um, you know, feder- federal model, federation model, the, you know, the, the Australian public service is responsible for policy. A lot of the delivery is done in the states, uh, but that's not always true. You've got, you know, like DHS, Department of Human Services, they do all the welfare tax does essentially. And then they have a critical role in providing advice to the government of the day and what we call fearless and impartial advice 
to the government of the day about big policy issues or the future of Australia. It's a, it's a wonderful group of um, very capable individuals and institutions. Well, it's great to hear it direct from David Thody. What about the way R&D has been funded and structured over time? Is there, has there been any changes? Let's take a long look. Let's look back, say, over the last 50 years because, I mean, that's probably the, an interesting place to start. It was after World War II and when the space race was going that there was a real injection of funds into by governments into science. But since that time, we've seen like a long-term trend in the way in which research has been funded. So historically, uh, research was funded through large block grants. For instance, universities would just give a big, large lump sum of money from the government to do to fund comprehensive research programs, or agencies were given, you know, uh, just funding for the agency, and then they could fund different projects. So they would choose uh, what it was that they wanted to research without too much direction necessarily on that funding. Absolutely. So it was yeah, it was kind of these large blocks of money and they were used to kind of fund comprehensive kind of diverse portfolio of research uh, and yeah, it was a lot of discretion down to universities or research agencies like the CSIRO. When it was when the CSIRO was established, they, you know, the act is very clear, very good actually when you go back to it. David Thody again on the origins of the CSIRO. It's, it talks about, you know, science and research for the good of the nation, you know, which is not necessarily a commercial outcome, but, you know, big national issues. In those days, it was um, how do we get more water for agriculture? How do we um, look at the water basins? How do we um, look at, you know, designing roads that are, not have less impact on the environment, all those sorts of things. Things that, that the private sector may not do, but were in the interests of the nation. So that was where publicly funded research came. Yeah, so it's, it's the public good it's argument. It's a public good, yeah. Yep. So I was going to say, well, we use the word national benefit, okay. which is, you know, and we try to use that because a lot of people get confused around that it's all around commercial outcome. It's not. It's, it's about creating a benefit for the nation as we go forward. Um, it also was about partnering with industry because what often what happens is that there is not a, I mean, a shared aspiration, this sort of nexus between industry and great science and research. So um, Billy Hughes, who announced the act, talked about um, you know science partnering with industry to create great outcomes, in which there's some great examples over that period. David Thody says it's not just the government's expectations of its researchers that has changed. Society has changed its expectations of how the government provides services. If you look at our expectations around the role of government, as reflected in public service, around something like welfare payments, things that used to take maybe six months to be considered, there's a very high expectation that would be done within weeks, you know, digital enabled age. Or um, if we're looking at something like law enforcement, um, we really rely on our law enforcement people to be across big cyber uh, issues, we, you know, terrorism. And these are very immediate things that in the past maybe would have taken a lot longer to consider. And now there's a you know, speed of you know, information flow, just our expectations have changed. But here's one of the sticking points. Publicly funded research brings together many different stakeholders, the scientists, 
industry bodies, businesses, as well as the broader Australian public, who often have contrasting interests about what sort of research is prioritised, what topics are funded, and how long we might be willing to wait for tangible outcomes. So how is that managed from the CSIRO perspective? David Thody says the balance is struck very delicately. I mean, knowing that probably in any one year, you know, 80% of what you're doing is set and it's really only the 20% you can, you know, you've got some leeway with. So you've got to keep looking at your long term and, uh, you know, 10, 20 years out and saying, are we heading in the right direction? I would say that's probably no different to running a business of any sort. Um, You're continually looking at... um, you know, when you're contracted to do something in the long term, you've got to make sure that you keep enough flexibility that you can respond to new opportunities that come along. Um, but look, in terms of science and research, I mean, it is a longer term game, which I think you're referring to, and you can uh, unintentionally or intentionally, you get resource caught in a certain area. But, you know, you make those commitments and you've got to sort of keep them. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't see it as anything different to normal, you know, normal sort of commercial mm. outcomes. And look, CSRO has got, has got to have a sense of commerciality about it as well because it's, um, it's not, it is pure science, but it's also about how you work with industry and therefore we're always looking for partnerships. Since that time, though, we've seen a trend towards, and this is kind of worldwide, not just in Australia, where research is being funded on a much more competitive basis, on a much more contract basis, and a much more concentrated basis, in the sense that governments are looking for a payoff out of the money that they're putting into science and research. And so the way in which they get that payoff is they're trying to pick winners, you know, and this is the concentration aspect. So putting pots of money up for specific areas of science rather than just letting uh, funding a comprehensive portfolio of activities. And on the other side, uh, they want to fund it not just by giving a big block grant to an organisation, they're actually giving money in terms of contracts. So uh, we will give you money for a specific program or a specific research program or to deliver this specific outcome. And then the competitive aspect is they're now asking different institutions or different individuals to compete for that money. So if I put my economic rationalist hat on, all right, what you describe to me seems to be entirely sensible. Let's direct the funding. Let's put the money where we think the benefit is going to be. Let's create competitions so that presumably everybody improves. Why is this current situation problematic then? Well, I don't want to say the entire system is problematic and there are definite advantages and you can see there's a definite logic in terms of expecting, for example, specific outcomes to become from uh, taxpayer money. I mean, I think gone are the days where taxpayers would be willing to accept that we just put money into universities or to research agencies and not to expect any sort of outcome or accountability out of that. So I can see there's a sense in this, but... By relying on more contract-based approaches to science, you do actually create some sort of, you do create problems. And this was some of the stuff that I looked at in my PhD. Okay, let's take a quick break before we dive into your PhD findings. You're listening to Think Business Futures. To download this show, head to 2ser.com or your favourite podcast app and look for 
Think Business Futures. On this episode, we're talking about the problem of public funding of R&D with our very own Dr. Nicole Sutton, who's a lecturer at the UTS Business School. Just before the break, you mentioned that you looked at some of the contracting problems within large scientific research projects for your PhD. So can you explain that a little further? So for my PhD, I was looking at the way in which research was being organised and structured within the Australian cotton industry and in some collective funding arrangements that involve both private uh, investment and uh, a lot of funds from the government as well. And in that, I was uh, looking at the way in which these projects were being organised and funded largely on a kind of external kind of basis. And in doing so, actually unpick some of the problems that exist there. Um, so when we know when we contract externally f- for research, there's a host of different problems that could arise. I mean, some of the things I've already referenced before, you know, a fear that there's going to be some sort of spillover or appropriation in the sense that, uh, you know, someone might take the intellectual property. Also, you get problems in terms of how you might put these different projects back together again. Um, but the thing that I was kind of interested in was looking at the specific problems around contracting. So uh, to look at that, when we look at the way in which you contract around a research project, we can think about a research project in kind of three different stages. Hang on. Can I just interrupt you for a second in relation to this? Yeah. So now you've started talking about contracting of research. So can you just help me understand who's contracting with who? Absolutely. So we have uh, on one side, we have a, a research funder. I'm just going to use that term. It could be the government, it could be an, a commercial organisation, it could be a collective of commercial organisations. Uh, so you have on one side of the transaction someone with money that wants to kind of buy the research. On the other side of the transaction is someone that I would, let's call like the provider, the research provider. Uh, and this might be an individual scientist uh, or a scientific organisation and they are going to take those funds and go and do the research project and deliver some sort of outcome back to the research buyer or funder. This is basically like outsourcing the research then? Absolutely. That's, yeah, we could think it like that. And so this, in doing so, we've actually shifted the research from something you'd pay an employee to do to something you're now paying an external contractor to do. Okay. So back to the challenges associated with this then. Yeah. One of the problems that exists is around how do we actually negotiate what that project is going to look like? The problems actually start just in kind of determining what the scope and the nature of that project is going to be. Can you explain that to me? Yeah, because when we're, like I said before, research is inherently risky and uncertain. So that means that it's not like outsourcing around, say, garbage collection. It's about outsourcing around something but by its very nature, you don't know what it's going to be at the other end. Uh-huh. So you're negotiating over an answer that you don't know at this point. Yeah, exactly. So in contracting language, we're going to have to rely on contracts that are kind of incomplete. Uh, so figuring out what the scope of that project's going to look like is going to be, you know, one of the challenges. Also, I mean, the, what the research funder wants to potentially, you know, buy might not necessarily align with the sort of science and research that the provider wants to do. So again, we're going to have different interests there that are trying to negotiate over the contract, over the project about what is going to be, you know, paid for. So this is kind of a problem that exists just upfront. 
then there's going to be problems that happen when the research buyer or funder is going to choose you know, who is actually going to potentially do the project, particularly if they're operating in some sort of competitive market and they might have multiple scientific organisations all bidding to do research on their behalf. Uh, and this is a problem because often each of those different project contracts are going to be idiosyncratic, they're going to be different, they're all going to be offering to do different things and the research funder has to decide, well, who am I going to fund here? Uh, and again, we're dealing with where it's really uncertain. Uh, we don't know, you know, the capabilities of the scientists. We don't know what's going to pay off in the long run. And like I said before, research has a really long lag. So like, I'm not even going to know my answer if I made a good decision until maybe 30 years down the track. So it's actually a really difficult investment decision as well. This must be very difficult then for the contracting organisations. Is this what you would describe as being information asymmetry? Yeah, absolutely. So there's an absolute information imbalance between, on the one hand, the funder who is trying to ascertain who should I potentially give these resources to, and the researcher on the other side who will always know more about their own capabilities um, and also the nature of the, the underlying science as well. Uh, this is just an information balance, imbalance between the provider and the funder. That's really interesting. So what happens then after a piece of research has been contracted? So they've made a decision. Yeah, so they make a decision, and this is where we have a third type of problem arising, and this is just ensuring that there's some sort of, I guess, contract compliance and ensuring that the, the project actually happens according to what they agreed upon. And if there's actually variation from what they agreed upon, how do they deal with that variation? Because, again, research is risky. And so it actually is a really tricky contracting problem problem because if I'm a research funder, obviously I've paid to get some sort of outcome yet and if it hasn't been delivered upon, then I want to I want to know why. On the other side, the researchers like they're trying to do the research, but it might be that it just didn't pan out that way. So it's actually quite hard to ensure whether or not the contract has been fulfilled or not. And if it hasn't, for what reason? Was it just because of a science thing or because maybe the researcher just didn't do the work? So now we have a sense of some of these problems that we're dealing with. What are the underlying causes of these? Well, this is where using a little bit of economic theory can shed some light on the matter. Uh, and for my PhD, I referred to and I used transaction cost economics or TCE theory to provide some theoretical structure about what was happening in these contracting relations. I have to admit that when I was doing my PhD and I started thinking in TCE terms a lot, it did actually... It did make me feel a bit strange. It's a theory that predicts when you're likely to get ripped off. This sounds like a great theory. We should all know this theory. Yeah, it's a useful theory, but you don't want to be walking around the world thinking this all the time. And it took a little bit of time after my PhD to let go of this kind of mindset about predicting when you're likely to get ripped off by somebody else and then protecting yourself against that kind of possibility. Can we talk more about these underlying hazards with this research contracting situation? Absolutely. So if we go back to TCE, it can explain 
the, the basis of where contracting hazards come from is really in the characteristics of the underlying transaction. So it's, you, it, we will have contracting hazards whenever a transaction is characterised with high uncertainty, high asset specificity and low frequency. And I'm quite happy to kind of unpick what each of those are. Yes, uh, you did talk a little about uncertainty earlier, but let's start to unpick this in more detail. Sure. So uncertainty means that if we have high uncertainty, we're going to have unexpected or unanticipated disturbances to the transaction after we've, after we've contracted. So something emerges later on. And this is a threat to contracting because if there is uncertain transactions, we can't write a complete contract that deals with all these different contingencies. So we actually have to leave our contract open. So is this the we don't really know what's going to happen problem that you talked about earlier? Yeah, that's 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 what we're talking about with uncertainty. Okay, so here's a really hard word to say, asset specificity. There you go, asset specificity. Can you explain that? Yeah, so asset specificity, it describes the level of investment that a provider, this is kind of in our case the scientist or scientific organisation, they have to make that are specialised towards doing that particular transaction. And that means that they can't use those assets. So assets is something that's kind of valuable. They can't use that investment for other purposes without some significant kind of loss of value. Perhaps the most significant type of asset specificity that we see in research is what we call human asset specificity, which means when you need to acquire specific knowledge or specialised skills in order to be able to do that particular kind of transaction, which obviously in the case of science is absolutely the case. That would seem to be a really significant issue for scientists given how much training they have in their specialist areas. Yeah, I mean, I can't think of transactions that require more like specific skills and knowledge. Uh, And I guess the, the thing is... I can't think of a transaction where you'd want to have such specialised skills and knowledge because when it comes to funding science and technology and research, you want to be funding the world expert. And by that very kind of the very inherent nature of that, you're funding that one individual that you can't get anywhere else. They are the person that knows about that particular bug that uh, grows on particular cotton plants in Australia. Okay, so we now have a new word, asset specificity. We're going to see this everywhere. Tell me about the third hazard. Uh, The third cause of hazards. Ah, Okay, thank you for clarifying that. (laughs) Yeah, so the third uh, feature of transactions are which give rise to contracting hazards, is frequency. And this is this is perhaps less well understood than the other two uh, characteristics, but we have a sense that when you have transactions that have low frequency, again, you're going to get contracting hazards because each time that you kind of set up to do the transaction, you're going to have to figure out how to contract again. So, And again, this is probably going to be the case in some, in some instances in research because each project is different. You can't just rely on the the systems and processes that be, you've been using for prior projects because each project in itself is idiosyncratic. So the challenges with contracting research then are driven by this level of uncertainty, the asset specificity, and then the frequency. 
These are the three key issues that sit underneath yeah, it. Yeah, and it's it's a little bit like the perfect storm of contracting hazards, right? Because within a given science project, you're going to have high uncertainty. You're going to have high asset specificity and you're going to have kind of low frequency in the sense that you're going to have kind of low recurrence. And you pull these three things together and that's the perfect storm for contracting problems. But as I said before, those three characteristics are exactly what you want in a science project. This is unavoidable because those three characteristics actually make science projects desirable. So the very characteristics that make science projects desirable are the same ones that make them incredibly difficult to contract around. How did you see this playing out in the Australian cotton industry? Because this is where this is the empirical or site location of your doctoral work. Is that right? Yeah, yes. Yeah. So we've been talking pretty theoretically up to up till now, and I think it's really important to kind of put this back into the everyday human kind of reality of what these contracting problems look like. Within some of the research that I did, we see these contracting problems playing out, particularly in terms of this issue around the, the reliance on specialised knowledge and skills. That was, that was the real problem that seemed to be highlighted. I mean, uncertainty is there as well, as was the low frequency. But I guess it was really this problem around asset specificity uh, that, that was the issue. So the issue being that on the one hand, we have funders who, because of the nature of the innovation system in Australia, have limited resources. And so they're having to make these tricky portfolio decisions Um, in terms of who they're going to be funding. Yet on the other side, we have scientists who have trained, I mean, so they've gone to high school. Yeah, that's a good place to start. Good place to start. They've then gone to university, done a science degree. Uh, Beyond that, they've done a PhD and probably a postdoc. And through that process, I mean, we're talking about really highly skilled people who've invested a lot to become the world experts in terms of the types of science that they can do. And then they're having to be funded through relatively short-term contracts. I mean, contracts that were on average, you know, three years long. And this was really problematic because it not only, it, it kind of restrained perhaps the scope of some of the projects that they would like to be able to do. They probably like to be able to do projects that last longer But on the other hand, you have these people who are so specialised and yet they're also really reliant on that funder for that funding because if they weren't able to get funded to continue to do that particular sort of cotton science, it's not as if they could go anywhere else. So you're telling me we've got someone who's done exceedingly well at high school. They've undertaken maybe seven to ten years of full-time education post-high school then they've started to work and then they've taken another five or ten years to be a world expert and they're existing in an environment where they're existing on year-to-year contracts. Yeah, and presumably sure. by this stage, you know, they may, you know, have a family or something or, or a social network. That, oh, absolutely, yeah. And they're existing on year, potentially year-on-year competitive contracts as well. So they're going to have to 
go and compete to get funding to be able to um, continue to do the work that they do. And keep in mind also, and this is particular to say the cotton researchers that I that I uh, were that I observed, they've actually had to relocate to particular areas to do that sort of science. And so these scientists will have relocated their family to um, this regional centre to be able to do this sort of work. And if they don't get the next contract, then there's not a lot of other employment opportunities there for a highly specialised cotton researcher besides doing cotton science. So they've also made significant personal investments to be there doing the sort of research that we as Australian people want them to be doing. This seems incredibly risky from the scientist's perspective. Yeah, absolutely. This is risky from the scientist's perspective. I mean, we're asking them ostensibly to make really substantial personal and professional investments because they're limiting in one sense their their employment opportunities to be able to do particular projects uh, and they've actually had to move yeah their families to particular areas as well and as opposed to situation where you have an employment contract where you have this kind of long-term contract you have tenure uh, and you can work on different projects. You are uh, you're living contract to contract. It's incredibly risky. How how do they get a mortgage? Well, some can't. So we've got some of the most highly skilled individuals in the country working on some of the most significant problems that the country has, and they can't get basic things like a mortgage or stability in their domestic life. Absolutely. So that's very risky for the individual scientists, but presumably there's risk for the contracting organisation as well. Would that be right? Absolutely. Contracting around specialisation absolutely causes mutual dependence on the part of both contracting partners. So even though the individual scientists are bearing the risk of specialisation initially, you know, this risk that they've become so specialised and reliant on these particular funders for employment, over time, those same funders become reliant on the scientists because they are the experts in doing those particular projects. So, for example, in my PhD within the cotton industry, there are scientists who have been doing, say, survey work. They've been doing the same soil survey every year for you know, 20, 30 years or disease surveys. And they're the only people that know exactly how to collect the data at what points. And so in one sense, the funders are actually becoming dependent on those specific individuals, which is a a pretty risky position to be in. So there's a tension here because uh, when you contract around science in using short-term contracts, there's an assumption here that it's like a competitive market and that, that there is a pool of supplies that you could switch between. Uh, But over time, what's happened is you're actually shrinking the pool of providers that you could potentially draw upon. And this problem is going to get even worse when we exist in a context where there's fluctuations in the amount of money available to fund science uh, as, as funding changes with the vagaries of the political cycle. Because if, if the pool of money available fluctuates, then those funders are actually going to be having to make quite short-term trade-off decisions between which scientists to fund and which not to fund. But there's a famous saying there, you can't turn science on and off like a tap. And you can't put these scientists on a shelf 
for a year when you don't have the money. Uh, and because they are so specialised, it's not as if they can go and get employment elsewhere and yet stay in the same kind of location. If they're not getting funded, then most likely they're going to have to leave and go overseas. So this is where this brain drain argument that's sat at a, a much broader societal level is becoming really significant then. Well, Australia actually has a really acute form of this problem because unlike other countries such as the United States or the United Kingdom or Europe where there is more institutions and more funding and more research agencies by which scientists could seek employment elsewhere, Australia doesn't have that critical mass of those institutions and funders, which puts us in a kind of riskier proposition in the sense that Again, if that scientist doesn't get funding, then they're going to have to go elsewhere. And this puts Australia at risk that we are not going to necessarily have the experts here to be able to work on Australian problems. What's David Thode's take on Australian scientists going overseas? Well, I, um, I think it's really important for our scientists, mathematicians, engineers. I think it's great to go over and work overseas. I think... We should encourage it because it's just that experience of being part of a global community, working at Stanford, Harvard, Oxford, wherever it is, you know. The other part of the equation is we've got to make it really attractive for them to come back. And one of the great dangers is that when people do overseas is, one, they lose contact because we don't keep reaching out to them, number one. And number two is when they do think about coming back, People sort of look and say, oh, where have you been? You know, and as if nothing's changed. And, of course, the individual feels like they've had this great experience. So we've got to be get a, better at, at, at helping them come back and settle here. Well, as an early career researcher, I guess I have to disagree a little bit. From my perspective, Australia does have a particular problem. And part of it is that we just don't have the critical mass of agencies and funders to be able to provide employment options if, for example, your current funding runs out. Even with, say, cotton, it actually is a really highly specialised field. It's not enough that someone just knows about cotton or cotton bugs, but we want to have the people in Australia working on the bugs that eat Australian cotton in Australian conditions. And again, if we go back to this idea about you can't turn science on and off like a tap, the problem is going to exist if we want to turn the tap back on. Because if we haven't been funding these people and they have either not chosen to actually specialise in the first place because they're looking down the barrel of you know, years of training and then precarious employment. And I can imagine as a young scientist that perhaps you just don't want to go down that route. Or alternatively, we have trained them here in Australia. They've got to the end of their PhD or a postdoc and they've left. And then at some point we want to perhaps turn the tap back on. We're not going to have the experts here to be able to draw upon. That brings us to the close of this episode of Think Business Futures. This podcast is made by the UTS Business School with the support of 2SCR 107.3. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find more episodes of the show on your favourite podcast app. You'll find our episode with Gerhard Hambush on teaching ethics to finance students along with our previous shows. As always, we'll put links on the show notes for further reading. Thanks, Nicole, for switching roles and being our guest this week. My pleasure. And if we want to find more of your work, where can we go? Uh, you can look up my profile on the UTS Business School website. 
that will be a fantastic thing to do.